Welcome to Thoughts on the Social World, socialworldpodcast.com, sponsored by David Niven Associates. Your host is Dave Niven. Welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven. And thanks to yourselves, we're now being downloaded, apart from in the United Kingdom, in 23 countries and in 23 states of America. Now, on the website, you can hear us, www.socialworldpodcast.com. Check us out through iTunes. Uh, we've got a new uh, gizmo, if you like, uh, speak pipe that uh, you can record your voice messages. And that's beside every blog. It's on the website, beside every podcast. And I'd really appreciate it if you did. So for those of you who have already, thanks. But most of you really get involved with that. That would be a good type of feedback to have. Thank you. Now, on that light, I'd like to thank Doris, I'd like to thank Jane, and I'd like to thank Sandra, all of you who've left messages, all of you who've left reviews on iTunes, and the comments that you made. It's very encouraging. Thank you very much. Now, if you can do a review on iTunes, I'd really appreciate that, because it gives us a good boost, and it gives us a good idea about the sort of things that you're thinking about, as well as remembering SpeakPipe and any feedback is welcome. Now today I'm going to be doing uh, several different things. We're going to have a terrific interview to start with, with Bridget Robb, who's the Chief Executive of the British Association of Social Workers. And Bridget's going to actually talk about the political and environmental context and the, the factors that provide these that context for social work in the United Kingdom. And she's going to look at the state of uh, social work in the UK and internationally as well, as well, obviously, as talking about the role of the British Association of Social Workers and the Social Workers Union that's part of it as well. So the first interview is going to be with Bridget. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, an interview I did, a BBC interview I'm going to play to you on cyberbullying, because I, I do think that's one of the greatest scourges around for our young people. And... I give some ideas, I give some tips, I give some thoughts to follow on it, and I'd really enjoy hearing your feedback on that because it's a huge problem. And finally, I'm going to say a few words about the um, the historic abuse inquiry that was launched in Northern Ireland this week, and just a few thoughts on that because it's been coming for such a long time. And uh, so we'll hear about that as well. So for now, enjoy listening, and uh, here's Bridget Robb. Well, today's guest, I'm delighted to say, is Bridget Robb. And Bridget's the Chief Executive of the British Association of Social Workers, which is the largest professional association for social work in the United Kingdom, and it's got offices in all four home countries. It's here to promote the best possible social work, and it also has established the Social Workers Union, which together with the very valuable Advice and Representation Service, offers a full range of services to improve social work and to support the membership right across the United Kingdom. So very, very welcome to you, Bridget. Thank you, David. I want to start by asking you a little bit about the big picture, if you like, the current sort of political environmental kind of factors which actually drive the context at the moment for social work in the United Kingdom. It's an enormous subject, I know, but just if you could just give us a few thoughts on that, I'd appreciate it. 
Thank you. I, th I think it's a, a good place to start because so often we jump into the detail about social work practice and the way that we're delivering it and the challenges that we face with, within each country within the United Kingdom. Um, but it is worth remembering that this is a global challenge um, and social workers uh, right across the world, and we are part of a very active global profession, um, are really exploring the challenges in the ways that we are. Uh, so uh, when you talk to colleagues, uh, whether that's in China or whether that's in uh, different countries in Africa, whether it's in the uh, Commonwealth countries, um, are really exploring very, very of the many of the same issues as we are. Mm -hmm. um, and so often we look at all this as though it's um, our, only our problems and only our issues to solve. Um, and I think sometimes we need to lift our eyes and, and be able and willing to look at what's going on elsewhere in the world and see how other people are tackling some of these uh, same issues. It's true, isn't it? We're not an isolated little island at all, are we? <laughs> well, we very often talk as though we are, and very often each country within the United Kingdom talks as though it's a, a, a unique centre. Um, and I think we need to be a little bolder, a little braver, um, and uh, say that actually we're, we're not on our own in this, that, that, uh, that there are many other ways and many other people that we can talk to to, to look for solutions. Okay, so, I mean, you've had an enormous amount of experience yourself in social work. Um, I mean, I, I, I know that, but also a practitioner as well as actually in management capacity and as well now in a leadership capacity nationally. I mean, you must have seen enormous changes over the years and uh, uh, ebb and flow in terms of being accepted, if you like, by the population uh, as a viable profession. Would you, would you say that's fair? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm part of the generation that, that uh, trained in, in the 1970s um, at the moment when the new social services departments were being formed after the Seabone report and that first bringing together of the different specialist roles to create our current understanding of social work. Um, and indeed, it's the time when Basworth, the British Association of Social Work, was formed itself. And I became a student member of that in, in its very early days. And so this this uh, growth of, of what is modern social work and, and what are the structures to deliver social work have been my own personal professional journey. Um, and you're right uh, that, that in those, uh, for me, early days of the 1970s, there was an incredible passion about social work, an incredible optimism um, that uh, the, the new structures, its new role within um, local authorities, the new commitment to working with the whole family, the whole person um, in, a, in a new, different way was an incredibly exciting time. And, and it wasn't that there was lots of money around or lots of resources, um, but that clarity of vision as to what social work was about. And then, of course, we've gone through the times when uh, that's proved incredibly difficult to deliver in practice. And, and so uh, partly changes in economics and partly changes in government and, and political philosophy, um, partly changes in, in uh, the development of other services, um, have, have carried on to make all this um, much more difficult to deliver. And, and, um, and again, we, we look uh, that that's not just our own experience here in the United Kingdom, but uh, um, countries around the world are still 
exploring those differences and at different times in history and in different times in society so we go for more generic models of, of workers and sometimes very specialist models of workers um, sometimes it's community based sometimes it's based in institutions I mean these are there's no one fixed answer for delivering social work and, and I think for me that's part of the excitement of the profession mm. um, we, we have that flexibility I remember, um, you know, hearing various things in the past about um, how certain parts of Africa, if you were in social work, you had to have also have an army rank. And in other places, um, social work was an entirely a voluntary occupation. Um, but what I vividly remember most when I was involved more nationally was that in the Western industrialized countries, social work is considered to be of a higher status than it does appear to be in this country as a profession and we're still struggling with that. Is that a fair comment? It's incredibly frustrating, isn't it? I, I don't know what, what else we can do as a profession um, to um, get people to uh, see us as, as, a, as a real contributor. And I, mulling over why it is, I mean, sometimes... Um, you think, well, what is it that plays a part? And part of it is, is our education status. And it took us a long time to get be accepted as a graduate profession within the United Kingdom. Um, and, I mean, that is important. And, and uh, uh, I mean, we're still struggling um, with, with that one. Um, but um, but it, is it something about buildings? I, I'm very conscious <laughs> that, that in... Uh, um, the, the United Kingdom, but social workers work very hard to actually close down institutions. We've played a very proactive part in closing long-term hospitals, in closing um, institutions for people with learning dis difficulties and, and uh, other, other uh, challenges. Um, uh, so we are very much a community-centred profession. And whether that just makes us vulnerable at times when people fight to keep buildings, whether it's fighting to keep prisons or schools or hospitals, um, it's, it's just fascinating, isn't it, as to, to why is it that, that we have found it quite hard to find a, a picture of ourselves as a profession that the layperson in the community can really understand and, and, uh, and value. I wonder, I mean, um, I've debated this over the years and I know that you have as well. Um, Britain, empire, we've lost our empire. We, we, we've lost the fact that we were perhaps one of the most, if not the most influential country in the world for some time. And therefore we possibly couldn't imagine accepting the fact that we had chronic poverty uh, and, and chronic disadvantage in our own country, you know, this, this, this country that ruled the world sort of thing. And so forever and a day, what we've tried to do is sweep that under the carpet, if you like, you know, the underclass and so forth. And therefore, the British public tends to sweep those that work with them, those that are charged to look after the disadvantaged under the carpet with them as well in some ways, because it's an embarrassment. It's a country where charity tends to be the place that people look to to deal with the underprivileged as opposed to professional workers like social workers. I, I've often wondered if that's an element in it. I don't know what you think about that. I'm, I'm sure you're right, David, that there is an element of that and certainly the fact that we um, do work um, and we are proud to speak publicly um, that we work with people who society finds difficult to accept, whether that is due to poverty, and obviously that's a major issue at the moment, um, uh, or whether um, it is due to 
them um, being the people who are the abusers as well as the abused, uh, mm. people who are um, seen as, uh, well, in the current climate, people who are um, on benefits, people who are um, being seen as, as on the margins of society. And we proclaim that as a positive place for us to be working. Um, that, uh, and, and you're right that we get tarnished um, in the same way that, that some of those individuals are tarnished in, in, uh, in the current media. Um, and uh, that makes our, our professional role a more difficult one for the public to accept, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, that uh, doesn't make it any less uh, valid for us, uh, a place for us to be. Um, and But I think sometimes social workers have... Um, uh, have it's difficult to know how to phrase it, but but sort of have have almost sort of relished being there, uh-huh. and I, so I think there is a, there are some elements in our own profession um, that um, want want our profession to be marginalised because that actually makes them feel more comfortable. Absolutely, I, I I kind of that resonates with me because I mean I've often thought that. Um, when we're doing training of social workers and um, empowering, if you like, of social workers and reminding social workers that they are as capable of professional as any other professional in this country in whatever discipline, that they should stand tall and stand up for social work. They are the experts. I, I still feel that there's several, quite a lot of social workers that would go into courtrooms, for example, um, and not call themselves an expert witness. There would certainly be social workers that would stand there and actually be try and be overly modest about what they do as opposed to actually recognizing the value of social work to society. I, I, you're right, I think we underplay it and we're far too modest sometimes about the achievements of social work. Would you agree with that? I think the examples you, you give are good ones, David. I, I think that, uh, that, that whether it's uh, feeling comfortable with the language of expert witness, whether it's the co- feeling comfortable uh, of the language of, of expertise, um, both academic expertise, because there's always a mindset of, with, with some people that by proclaiming our, our expertise and our leadership, that somehow that is driving a wedge between ourselves and the people that we are working with. Um, in a way that that uh, the workers feel uncomfortable with, mm-hmm. and I think it, it's something that maybe that that uh, not just through training, but but in our work environments, that we need to do more to explore and, and examine how can we uh, be genuine in saying to our um, uh, you know, service users and the, and uh, and that, that uh, what is it that they want from us? Is it just a, a, a friendship? Um, and an alliance or actually are they wanting us to have expertise which is shared with that we don't do it in an oppressive way we don't use our power against them um, but that that that, uh, that um, certainly I mean for those people who are now beginning to buy our services what are they buying um, that that, uh, that it doesn't um, of itself make the relationship any less valid and any less um, uh, workable um, no to do the best for people um, to underplay our own expertise and I, I, I think uh, sometimes we have um, got, got caught in a trap of thinking that, that it's an either or and I don't think it is an either or I think, it, I think it's both do you, think, do you think there's an existing political threat to um, 
how social worker how social work is in this country perhaps uh, an agenda in certain parts to actually privatize social work completely or do you think that that's possibly just uh, an overreaction on some people's parts to certain activities that whatever government it is actually puts in place certainly we're, we're not exempt from from the trends of the current coalition to um, seem to want to privatise everything, uh, whether that's the health service, we've watched what's gone on in, in education, um, and that absolute political um, conviction to reduce the role of the state. Hmm. Bridget, what would you say then that the, um, the role and the place of the British Association of Social Workers uh, and of course the Social Work Union, which is an integral part of things now, has in, in the landscape of the future? I hope that we will be seen as, as the uh, main place for social workers um, who want to uh, be part of the uh, social work community, um, that uh, they will see us as the, the place where we are the, the internationally recognised professional association um, for social workers in the United Kingdom. Okay, Bridget, just one final thing I want to ask you then, and that's... Um about social media, the use of social media, whether it's to deliver services, whether it's to communicate with service users, whether it's to communicate with um, professionals and other agencies or, or whatever use we have for the kind of increasing landscape in social media. What's your views on that? I think social media offers enormous uh, opportunities and, and very exciting new ways of working, uh, as you say, both with the um, public and, and with other professionals. Um, Baswell has done quite a lot of work on developing a, uh, our own policy around the use of social media um, because it, it, people have to be aware of both the benefits but also the, the potential dangers um, and so workers need to be trained to use social media um, but then not to be frightened of it um, mm. and to look, find ways of using the, the opportunities and, and, and new ways of working um, which uh, can, can be uh, so imaginative um, for so many of our service users. Thank you. Well, a final sentence then, if I could, Bridget Robb, about, if you like, a message to social workers in the United Kingdom from the Chief Executive of Baswell. Could I just ask you for that, what, what your message might be to social workers listening out there? Thank you, David. I, I think social work's at a, at a really important crossroads. Um, we are uh, facing enormous challenges. I know it's a really difficult place for many people to be working at the moment. Um, but hold on in there. Social work as a profession is not going to disappear. There are all sorts of opportunities within our each of our countries and internationally there's so much good that's going on uh, we have the skills we have the ways of working we will see it through thank you first the charity Childline says too many children appear to be struggling and in despair the charities reported an 80 percent increase in the number of children concerned about cyber and racist bullying david niven is a former chairman of the british association of social workers he now provides training on child protection 
Not really surprised at all, Jeff. Um, given the rise in kind of um, the use of technology by teenagers, especially these days, is such a huge amount. I think like eighty percent of all teenagers have got phones or, or um, are on the same media sites of some kind, or are actually talking with each other, communicating with each other all the time. It is the way of the world at the moment, and therefore we shouldn't be surprised that an awful lot of the bad stuff is getting transferred onto the airwaves as well. But I mean, you know, it doesn't stop us trying to interrupt it and it doesn't stop us trying to educate both parents, carers and teenagers at the same time. Um, do enough people care about this subject, do you feel? Oh, I hope so. I don't know exactly. I mean, a very good question, but I think enough people that I know do because they see the damage that it does to teenagers. They see the, um, the grief, they see the um, angst, they see the attempts at suicide and they see the actual suicides. And, um, and anything that produces that kind of violent trauma, that kind of reaction, is obviously got to be taken very, very seriously. What can we do? Well, so many different things, but I mean, a kind of a checklist, if you like, that I go through is make sure, if you're the parent, you're the carer, you're the friend, you're the brother, you're the big sister, whatever, but make sure that you give unconditional support. Don't try and blame the, the young person. Make sure that um, you contact the, the, the providers, if you like, the, those who actually are allowing this to happen on their sites. Make sure you tell them and they try and block the bullies. Zero tolerance, I think, is the best because, you know, any chink in the wall and you're still going to get a lot of people hurt. You should listen very carefully and not judge and respond to it. I think an awful lot of this revolves around schools because if we think about it, most young people are at school more waking hours than they are at home. So the school's got a big responsibility and most schools now are getting extra money from the government and extra initiatives. And it's now going to be the law that um, all five-year-olds and upwards are actually taught about um, the use of um, cyberspace and the dangers of bullying. So that's going to be part of every school curriculum from now on. Ultimately, you've got to recognise that it's... Uh, a home problem. The parents and the carers have got to be the ones that ultimately put their arms around that child, make sure they realise that it's just other people's problems that are, that are causing this, not their child's, and that effectively they're loved, they're cared for and they're supported. Yeah, and there's also a parental responsibility for the perpetrator, obviously, to know what their child is doing on the computer, in the study or on the yeah. tablet on the lounge, on, on the knee. They, they've got to know that, haven't they? Absolutely, and that brings me back to the zero-tolerance approach. I mean, in other words, if you are being bullied or if you find out your child is being bullied, then I think it is incumbent upon you, no matter what, to actually raise the question with the school. Because it's a bit like, there's nothing different in a lot of ways to your child coming home with a black eye or your child coming home having, you know, had, had some sort of the ribs broken by somebody, that, a bully that kicked them to pieces at school or something like that. The, the sort of bullying that went on when I was younger. OK, I mean, the report says there are 4,500 cases of cyberbullying in 2012-13. Do you worry that there are a lot of more cases who just don't come to the fore, just don't tell people about? Inevitably, there must mm. be. There must be. If these are the reported... If you just think back, I don't know, maybe the day that you were at school, when, certainly when I was at school, 
so much bullying that went on wasn't reported because you were either you were frightened or you didn't want to um, appear to be soft or you didn't want to get people into trouble. You wanted to be part of the gang or you wanted, you know, you just, just didn't want this to be um, a big issue and you to be isolated from everybody else your, your same age. So there must be the same um, things that prevail these days that must be the same issues for young people I must be part of things I don't want to rat on my friends if I do, nobody will ever speak to me again What's your perception of other countries, other parts of the world? Well, interestingly, I, I, I shared a platform at a conference in London recently with the Bear Trust, who are a UK-based organisation that's set up to help vulnerable and disadvantaged children in Russia and, and the surrounding countries. And I shared a platform with a professor from the University of Kiev in the Ukraine, uh, who's made a special study of this. And well, I suppose I was going to say spookily, but... Maybe not, but we came to the same conclusions. Firstly, that the instances of um, cyberbullying um, are probably just as much manifest there as here. But secondly, ultimately, it's down to the families to actually help the young people and to unconditionally support them. Yes, alert the authorities. Yes, if you can, tell, tell the school. Yes, if you can, confront the perpetrators. But ultimately, it's support from the family, reminding that young person that they're loved, whatever happens, that, that whatever's being said about them is just exaggerated rubbish. And that, in effect, it's just people trying to get under their skin, whereas they're much better than that. Interesting stuff from David Niven, former chairman of the British Association of Social Workers. He now provides training on child protection. Those are startling figures from Childline saying that 80%, an increase of 80% in the number of children concerned about cyber and or racist bullying. So read more about uh, David's thoughts on his blog, all the w's.socialworldpodcast.com is where you can read David Niven's thoughts. Right, well, thanks for listening to today's uh, podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, uh, on the 4th of April in Bristol, we have a conference coming up, a terrific lineup titled This Is My Childhood, There'll Be No Other, looking at uh, early years, development, behaviour. The toxic trio, if you like, uh, affecting zero to two-year-olds in households where there's domestic violence, substance misuse, and possible mental health issues as well. And just how does a child that age cope and what can we do to help them? And the keynote speaker is going to be Dame Tessa Jowell MP, who uh, launched this whole initiative that was um, provoked by the UNICEF um, initiative itself. So effectively, we're having a brilliant conference on the 4th of April in Bristol. Check it out on our website, www.socialworldpodcast.com. Now, there's much more on the web as well, and also it will tell you about our media training, which we're now ramping up because it's become a real popular item. I encourage you to have a look at it, I encourage you to think about it, and I encourage you to think about just how you and your work might actually be improved by getting to know the media, getting to use the media to the best advantage. It's not just all about reputation management, it's not just all about dealing with it in a crisis. There's a huge swathe of time where the media is there for good and for promoting your work, your business and your ideas.
Now, next week, delighted to tell you that we're going to have an interview with um, Annie Hudson, who's the chief executive of the College of Social Work in the United Kingdom, well, in, in England and Wales. And she is um, a very experienced person, and it'll be a fascinating interview. So many thanks again for listening today. Look forward to your company again next week. Bye-bye.